Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the morning of September 15th, 2008, the world woke up to news of one of the most devastating bankruptcy filings in history. A major shakeup on Wall Street. Lehman Brothers has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Global investment bank Lehman Brothers had collapsed in the wake of the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. And when no financier or government stumped up the cash to bail out the bank, investors were left wondering who or what would be next to fail. The fall of Lehman Brothers triggered fear across global markets, leading to what is considered the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Today, estimates of the total cost of the crisis are upwards of $10 trillion. So what about the people on the front lines of the crisis? This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, we're going to hear from two people with two very different perspectives on the financial crisis and find out what they've learned in the 10 years since. My role at the stock exchange was to look after the regulation of all of the exchange's markets. Nick Bailey was the head of regulation at the London Stock Exchange from 2003 to 2011. Um, There'd been a lot of volatility in the markets. The the markets had obviously taken a very dim view of what was going on within Lehman's. The spread on their credit default swaps, that's the cost of insuring Lehman's debt, had, had dramatically increased and and you know, the markets were basically saying Lehman's was in all sorts of trouble. And I suppose the assumption on most people's part, myself included, was that uh, governments would probably step in or the US government would probably step in and rescue Lehman's. In the run-up to that weekend in the middle of September 2008, 13th, 14th weekend, We were quite worried, but we thought something was going to happen and we thought Lehman's was going to get rescued. You know, reading books now, we know what was happening over that weekend. There was a lot of transatlantic diplomacy with people flying backwards and forwards and so on um, across the pond to try and do some sort of deal. And, And when it didn't happen, you know, when I got a call on the Saturday, I think it was, to to join a conference call on the Sunday evening, uh, to, to talk about what was happening with Lehman's, um, it became fairly clear that perhaps this rescue wasn't going to happen. When that call was confirmed, which it was, I guess, around, I guess it would be in the afternoon, probably, of Sunday afternoon. So I got another message to say, you know, this call is going ahead and Paul Tucker wants to brief everybody in the city about what's, what's going on. At the time, Paul Tucker was the deputy governor of the Bank of England. And before the markets would open the following day, he wanted to talk to the leaders of London's financial centre in the city of London to ensure the market would be ready for whatever might come the following day. But by the time the call took place on a Sunday evening, people seemed to know 
that Lehman's was in trouble. I recall going into that call thinking this isn't going to be good news. Okay, that we're going to get told there's a problem here and we're going to have to get ready for this. We had already stood up the team on the Friday and said, look, Monday could well be chaotic. Get ready to come in very early. Get ready to be at your desks at the crack of dawn. I recall that Paul Tucker opened the conversation by confirming, I think, what most of us had already picked up on the wires by then, that Lehman's wasn't going to be rescued and that it was likely to collapse. But hearing it from somebody very senior at the Bank of England obviously made it very real. It suddenly comes home that, that this is this is going to happen. Lehman's were going to go into administration. And, and we had no idea what was going to flow from that, but we knew it was going to be bad because of their importance as, as, as a player in the markets, um, because of their size, because of their scale. And so when Paul opened the call, confirming what, what we already knew and said that he expected Lehman's to go into administration the following morning, and he wanted assurance that people were ready he wanted to hear from the city that people were ready and, and that this wasn't going to cause, you know, the collapse of the entire system. I was the first person on the call to speak apart from Paul Tucker. And you know, I think in these situations, you want to be helpful, but you also want to be uh, concise. And so I confirmed that we were ready, that we prepared announcements, that we were ready to suspend Lehman's access that we were ready to put them into default um, and that, you know, we didn't have any reason to think that it would cause any systemic issues in the market in relation to, to, to the equity market, which is what I was responsible for. The London equity market was my problem in relation to what was going on in the London equity market. It shouldn't cause any problems. And then I shut up and he said, right, Let's hear from, and then we moved on to talk to the London Clearinghouse, you know, and the other exchanges, and then we worked around everybody else on the call. And everybody said, I suppose, similar things, which is they understood, you know, which bits of, you know, business it was go were going to be affected by Lehman's administration and so on, and they were they were ready to go. Everybody said the same thing. You know, nobody turned around and said, this is going to be a bloodbath and this is going to be something which um you know we have no idea what the implications of this are going to be everybody was extremely worried you know this wasn't a happy call but everybody was trying to give the bank of england the assurance that their house at least was in order i don't think we had any idea that the problems that had caused the collapse of lehman's other banks had similar problems and and if you'd have told me on that sunday evening that lehman's was just the first and that actually in due course some of the global titans of in the investment banking world were going to almost collapse themselves and have to go through emergency mergers and be rescued by the fed and and so on i you know i wouldn't have believed you at that point i don't think any of us had any idea that this was going to be the start of of something so dramatic so traumatic so I got a train in very early and I was there with a, 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 you know, a handful of other reasonably senior people, bleary eyed at about five in the morning on the Monday morning. So we were in communication with people from Lehman's fairly early in the morning there because obviously their staff had all come in as well. They didn't really know what was going on. So we were in communication with them saying, look, we're suspending your access. You're not going to be allowed to trade this morning. 
Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. Many people are stunned that the powerhouse investment banks couldn't weather the subprime storm. We're seeing today what is perhaps one of the most dramatic days we've seen so far in the global credit crunch. But it was the following morning when I went over to Bank Street to the Lehman's building. Myself and a couple of colleagues had a meeting with a couple of the PwC partners and their legal advisors. I'd been there before a few times. It has lovely views down the river in Canary Wharf. And I'd been up to the top floor there and had lunch with the Lehman's guys a few times. And and it was a lovely place. It was a place of peace and tranquility when you go up there and have, have a meeting with them. It has deep pile carpets. It has you know, lovely pictures on the walls. It has highly polished dining tables and things. It's a, it's a really classy place. But up on the top floor where previously it had been a place of tranquility and um a really nice place to have lunch. It was pretty chaotic, I have to say. So the, all, all the paintings had gone from the walls, okay? And what my, my overwhelming recollection was that there were lots of PwC juniors with laptops kind of running between rooms. They were, they were all, and, and in these dining rooms that overlooked the river, Lots of these people were all crowded round tables, so a big a big dining table might have had a dozen or fifteen juniors from PwC hunched over their laptops, typing away, you know, trying to work out what they were supposed to be doing. Can you remember what was going through your mind in these first few days after Lehman collapsed? What you were, I guess, most worried about? I remember spending hours just sitting looking at the screens and looking at the trading that was going on in the market and thinking, where is this going? You know, what's going to happen? You know, institutions whose share price had fallen every day for a week or two weeks or something, you were thinking, well, where does this stop? Are they going to go down the pan? And there were rumors circulating all over the place about who was going to have to be rescued, who was going to collapse and this kind of thing, who was exposed to Lehman's and, and who was going to be next. And it was a pretty terrifying time. I don't think anybody had any real idea of what was to come. Um, I certainly don't think anybody was talking about this being a crisis which stretched across the entire industry. And, and something would reach out in due course into the real economy, you know, into real, real people, people who aren't in the financial services industry. Americans are concerned about the adjustments that are taking place in our financial markets. And we're working to reduce disruptions and minimize the impact of these financial market developments on the broader economy. My name is Julia, and I'm a registered nurse. Um, in Central Florida in Melbourne near the Space Center. It was about 2006, I guess. My husband and I, we had a toddler, and we had started our own businesses. We had an art gallery and a web design business. And they were both doing really well at the time. And really, we were doing great. Everything was going great. We were planning on having another baby so we had kind of put down roots in the area and had decided it would be a good time to buy a house. Did anyone tell you that you should get a bigger house or that you could get a more expensive home than you thought you needed? Yeah, I mean, actually, my real estate agent took me to his house, which he had just bought not long before, and showed me what a, you know, 
what all the nice new houses that were being built and you know I could get something so much newer and nicer and I think I was qualified for 300 around 300,000 I had no experience with buying a house in my life you know I talked to my parents and asked for their advice and they said well that sounds like a lot and I'm like well you, that's how much houses are going for now and they said well I guess so you know, so we we really didn't know what we were getting into, and we hadn't really done much research on the real estate market in the past because we never looked into buying a house before. We found a house that we liked that was close to our office, and we thought we got a great deal. Julia says they bought their house for two hundred and fourteen thousand dollars and ended up paying a monthly mortgage of about eighteen hundred. At the time that we bought the house, we were making about. 270000 a year, which for us was the most money we had ever made. I mean, we were really kind of proud, you know, we were happy, you know, everything was going well with our business. And, you know, we had a, another baby in 2007. You know, I was really busy with having two little ones and uh, working as a nurse and helping run the business. <laughs> but it, everything seemed to be going well. And, and, we didn't really have any problems financially or otherwise. Everything seemed to be fine. I guess in around 2008, late 2008, maybe 2009, we started to notice that, you know, there was less and less money coming in. We were, our clients didn't want to put out, uh, spend as much money. Everybody was getting a lot more conservative. The effects of the current economic crisis have touched everyone. We've started this year in the midst of a crisis unlike any that we've seen in our lifetime. And uh, people were tending to more want to buy like cheap prepackaged websites and have us just tweak them for for them or hire their their cousin that, and then you know their cousin would mess it up and and then they'd try to get us to fix it for them. And it was it was becoming, um, you know, a lot of headaches like that business-wise. I think it, it got pretty stressful. By 2010, we were just basically operating in the negative. And I didn't really realize it because we had a, an accountant that my husband would work with. And I was just work, focusing on doing these special events and trying to attract more business, you know, and also working as a nurse and taking care of two little kids. I started to hear from the workers that they weren't getting paid on time. And then, you know, when I went to talk to my husband about it, he would kind of brush it off and just, I think he was just trying to maintain and really um, was pretty overwhelmed. And, then all of a sudden he just emptied our all of our bank accounts, the business accounts and the personal accounts and just disappeared and left me with a big house, a brand new nice house and a one-year-old and a five-year-old and uh, a lot of debt. When did you realize what had actually happened? Um, it was actually 
our accountant fi- had called me personally on my cell phone. I didn't usually deal with the accountant, but she called me directly and just wanted me to know what was going on so that I could be prepared, but it was too late, you know? One of my friends also worked at the bank that we used and had called and alerted me that he was taking money out of the bank. And then by, but by the time I found out, he was already gone. It was a complete shock. I was completely devastated, to be honest. Do you remember what you did next after you got that call from your accountant? I don't know who I called first, but... I did call my parents, I called my best friend, and I cried a lot. I was really devastated, and I felt, like, lost, you know? Because everything that I had worked towards, you know, my family, my business, you know, everything that my my purpose in life, I felt, you know, had just disappeared, really. I think within a, a month or two, maybe a month and a half, My house got broken into five times and robbed. And at that time was really like the kind of the worst part of the economy. People were really desperate at that time. People were like lurking around our yard, you know, and I'm alone with my kids. So it was scary. I wanted to leave, but nobody was going to rent it probably with all the crime, you know. And I knew I could, if I rented it out, I couldn't make enough to cover the mortgage. So... The um, house was worth like less than half that I than I paid for it. I really didn't know what to do, so I was just working as much as I could and trying to make ends meet. My attorney friend advised me just to let it foreclose. That I there's no way I could probably even afford to pay the taxes if I tried to short short sell it. So I let it foreclose, and you know I was, which was really unfortunate. I really and I kind of felt guilty about it, and then. Um, in 2011, I also had to claim bankruptcies because um, I couldn't pay all the all our creditors, you know. So that was another defeat. <laughs> you know, I just felt really defeated, to be honest. Then I just kind of fi- had to start all over financially. You know, so I just worked as much as I could, and my parents helped me watch my kids and helped me raise them, really. You know, try to get back on my feet, and it took me... You know, I would say probably six years just to get back to a comfortable place, like a comfortable middle class lifestyle where I didn't feel like I was financially struggling, where I got my credit back to a normal range and was able to rent again without, you know, and pass a credit check and, you know, things like that. How are you and your kids doing today? I'm doing good. I'm really, um, I, I'm super, super busy. I just went back to school last year. So I'm studying to, for my master's in science and nursing to be a nurse practitioner. I'm super motivated and extremely busy. I have no free time at all. I'm just studying all the time. But, but otherwise, it's great. Everything's going well. My kids are happy. Everybody's healthy. And I really, really couldn't be better right now. Julia, did this experience change the way that you think about money? Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot and I've had nothing. And 
I feel like it doesn't matter what you have at the, at the time, you know, at, I think we were, you know, becoming a little materialistic and really kind of frivolous with our spending and going on nice vacations all the time and everything, you know, we really, when we didn't have any worries about money and then, you know, all of a sudden I really didn't have any money at all. I'm just a lot more frugal in general. I realize there are so many things that we don't need. We're such a consumerist society and people are so focused on having things and none of these things are going to make you happy. And did it make you think any differently about the way the broader financial system might work? Yeah, really. I mean, I felt like um, I, in the greater scheme of things, I don't matter at all. Nobody cares about me, you know? You know, nobody cares if, if I buy a house that is um, not going to be worth half of, <laughs> of what I paid for it, as long as they're making money. And also that the things that I've been through, I mean, nobody was going to help me. I had to help myself, you know, and the the big, you know, financial companies and the big banks and corporations, they, they all get bailed out. But the little guys like me don't get bailed out. Nobody's going to help us. So it made me realize that I have to be a lot more careful about the financial decisions I make in my life. I asked Nick the same question. How did the crisis change the way he thought about the way the global financial system really works? The market is supposed to be efficient. The market is supposed to be capable of deciding that the, the strong survive and the weak die. They get killed off. That's what happens. And outside the financial services sector, that is what happens. You know, bad businesses go to the wall every, every week, you know, and nobody turns around and says, well, that's very sad. We ought to rescue them. The public was so outraged at having to rescue banks, rescue financial institutions, rescue the bankers that caused the crisis. Why should they be rescued? They wouldn't rescue a normal business. They wouldn't rescue a factory. They wouldn't rescue a mine. They wouldn't rescue a shop. And, and so there was a lot of outrage. And that outrage, which is really still around 10 years on from the crisis, meant that politicians, you know, um, weren't able to push back against Regular, new regulation, new imperatives, and the, the market um, wasn't able to push back. The regulators and the policymakers, in many cases, simply stopped listening to the industry. And they stopped listening to the industry because of the public outrage. I genuinely believe that financial services is different because it's special and because in some cases it has to be rescued using public money because it's too important to the economy to allow some bits of the infrastructure and some bits of the market and some financial institutions to fail. It has more responsibility as a result and therefore it should expect to be heavily regulated. It should expect to have obligations that don't exist elsewhere. You know, I believe that financial services has a genuine moral obligation to be better than other industries. And, and, and we want the best people in financial services, but I don't think it's always been the case that we've had the best people. But we want people to come into the industry because they believe it's important and interesting and that it has a vital role to play in the prosperity of the economies, not just to make themselves personally richer. I think 
the trust has been lost by by the financial services industry of the public and i think it will take a long time for it to come back the financial crisis affected julia and nick in very different ways yet listening to them reflect on the 10 years since you can hear a similar refrain and these are just two perspectives there are many more homeowners stock exchange regulators, investors, and former Lehman traders who were at the front lines of this crisis. My colleague Lila Reptopoulos, the FT's community editor, spoke to some of these people. And you can read their stories at ft.com forward slash financial crisis. And if you're not already a subscriber of the FT and would like to take a look at our latest subscription offer, you can go to ft.com forward slash offer. We'll be back next week. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.